Zachary Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already appeared. Here in our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil. And uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harper Conference. And the 2015 Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian-type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay? This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. How do you define success for an author? Getting an agent? Getting a book deal? Getting a second book deal? Keeping your agent and your publisher well into a lucrative career? Maybe making the New York Times bestseller list or keynoting writers' conferences or some level of fame? I define it like this. Writing books you love and getting them into the hands of people who will also love them. And that I have done and hope to continue to do. What I write is not based on what is selling or trending at the moment. It's not the result of a formula found in a how-to-plot-a-bestseller book. Rather, it's what I want to read. I never understand it when an author says he doesn't read his own books. If you don't even want to read them, why should I? I'm busy at the moment finishing up the details of my next novel's release, but if I weren't, I'd gladly crack open one of my former novels, and I would enjoy reading it. And I'm not embarrassed by that. Why, everything happens just as I would want it to, like it was tailor-made for me. What more can you ask for? Sure, I'm not surprised by it. There's no nail-biting, even though it's a suspense title, but there never really is when you reread a book that you love. This all gets to a question that has popped into my mind recently, as the release date for Playing Saint All Souls Day approaches. Why write a sequel to a book that didn't break any sales records, didn't break me out as the next big Christian author, didn't even earn me a third book with the publisher? Why did I do that? Doesn't that limit the potential audience to a rather small pool of people who read the first book and liked it enough to seek out the second? And the answer, to quote Phineas Flynn, is, why yes, yes it does. So why not just skip that and write a new standalone novel that follows some recent trends in suspense fiction and is more likely to actually grow my reader base? And the answer is multifaceted. There's a few reasons. One, I want to read Playing Saint All Souls Day. By the time I got the no thanks from the big publisher, I already had a few chapters written and a 20,000-word outline in place, more on the giant outlines next week, and I was all in for that book. I couldn't just abandon it partially done by the side of the road. That wasn't even an option for me. I wanted to see it finished, and I'm not going to write it just for me. I'm not like George McFly. I, I never let anyone read my stories. No, I share my stories with the world. That's the fun part. And secondly, after a couple years of uncertainty, of parting with a publisher, breaking with an agent, I really just wanted to do something for my readers, readers who have been awesome and super encouraging through all of it, 
And I don't mean that to sound weirdly arrogant, like my writing another playing saint book is some gift to the world, like, here, you can buy my product, you're welcome. On the contrary, it's more a gift for me than anything else. I want to be able to present this next chapter in the saga to people who will want to read it so I can hear their response. Even if it doesn't live up to the first one, it will be really refreshing to breathe new life into that writer-reader relationship and reopen those lines of communication. And let me take a moment here for the rare bit of writing advice. For you authors, don't write what you think other people want to read or what they want to buy. Don't chase the latest trends or hot genre or the ever-elusive book market. If it's huge right now, you're already too late to get on that train anyway. Yeah, sure, there's the one-in-a-billion type flukes. Yes, Fifty Shades of Grey started as Twilight fan fiction, but if you're anything like me, you wouldn't even want to sell a million copies if it meant that you'd be known for that kind of garbage. And ironically, this is a very crass sentence, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's fitting. You don't want your work to be the result of you digesting literary junk food and then producing literary crap for the lowest common denominator. And at the end of the day, 99.99999% of the time, that stuff won't sell anyway. Instead, I encourage you, write books that you want to read. Put them out there through whatever channel is right for you, and you'll almost certainly find other people who want to read them too. Now you've got a group of readers who actually share something in common with you, not a customer base that you need to constantly placate and patronize. Cultivate that readership. Spend more time on that than on your Twitter presence or any of that generic platform shtick. And I realize that half of you will probably hear this advice and say, well, no wonder you are where you are, and that's fine. But if you haven't been where I've been, you don't know what I know. That, based on a moment in the glow of being the next big thing, I can tell you it's a huge letdown in and of itself. It's not real validation, and as an author, at the end of the day, regardless of your level of quote-unquote success, all you've really got is your books and your readers. And if you can't honestly say that you love both, in my book, you'll never be a success. This has been Not Fiction, but now it's time to turn our attention back to Trenton and Judith and the little town of Clinch Rock. Previously on Clinch... Barton rolled his head around on his enormous neck, drawing a couple loud cracks. Trenton shoved him. Easy there, Nancy, Dan said, shoving him back a little harder. Trenton saw it all unfold with near clairvoyance just before it actually did. He felt the blow to his right eye, the free fall, and his spine connecting with the hard floor. Yeah, both you hooligans get out of here, Todd chided. You're lucky I don't call your fathers and report this. And don't bother coming back, Trent. You're fired. Intent on fixing something in his life, Trent stood dramatically. He began the ten-minute walk to Zoe's house. Zoe answered the door, her body language anything but welcoming. This little episode just proves that neither of you is mature enough to date me. Why don't you call me when you've grown up? Trent, something serious has happened. It involves Judith. I need you to come down to the station right now. Clinch, a novel. Chapter 14. For the first time since returning from camp, Trenton grabbed his bike. He was way beyond caring if Zoe saw him on this juvenile mode of transport. Judith was more important. He stopped pedaling for a second while he processed that thought. Judith was more important to him than Zoe. Of course she was. 
He pushed it faster and pulled up to the police station in under five minutes. He dumped his bike into the bike rack and was halfway up the steps when he heard the brief halted squawk of a siren. It was Dad, sitting in his cruiser, beckoning Trenton to join him. Trent slid into the passenger seat and shut the door. It was freezing in here. Trent shifted sideways in his seat, facing toward his dad to try and mask the shiner. Somehow, in the rush to leave, he'd thought to grab a pair of aviator shades, which he hoped would kick the can of that uncomfortable conversation down the road a ways. Dad looked tired and old, like he'd aged ten years just this morning. Is she okay? Trenton asked. His dad nodded. A little banged up, but physically she'll be fine. Not sure about her mental state. What happened? I got a call this morning from Grant McDowell, owns the sports bar up there on 10. He said that last night he saw someone attack Mr. Fisher from your school, out behind the bar. He said it was a woman and they were fighting, pretty intense stuff, so he went to get his gun and by the time he got back out to the parking lot, Fisher was all alone, lying on the ground. Mac helped him get cleaned up and called Marilyn to come get him. Trenton felt like he was sinking into the leather seat of the cruiser. This could not be happening. He thought about how big Coach Fisher was compared to Judith. And then he thought about the voice he'd heard from one of the men in the home store. No excuses, no delays, it had said. Was it possible that he'd been one of the broad-shouldered burglars? This morning, his dad continued, Mac called me and asked me to make sure he was all right, just check in on him. At first, Fisher didn't want to talk about it until I mentioned Mac said it was a woman. Then he broke out with a stream of profanity and the name Morgan. He turned and looked at Trent. Son, Judith attacked him. She lay in wait and attacked Mr. Fisher. Trenton nodded. You don't seem all that surprised. Did you know she was thinking of doing this? No, I mean, I knew she wanted to, but I didn't think she'd actually... He trailed off. No, that wasn't true. He hoped she wouldn't. He wished she wouldn't. But deep down, he knew she would. The chief rubbed his eyes hard for a minute and then said, She mentioned Marilyn Fisher in her own rant. Do you know what this is all about? I do, and I'm really sorry, Dad. We stopped by the church to say hi on Wednesday, and your door was open a little. We overheard Marilyn talking about, you know, I see. I assume you realize how inappropriate that is. Listening in, I mean. Your whole life I've been a police officer and you've had to respect that some things are confidential and you may come into contact with those things. It's no different with the pastorate. I know, Trent said. We didn't want to hear, we just did. No one said anything for a minute. Finally, Trent asked, So what happens to her now? Well, Fisher's not pressing charges. I think he's humiliated that a girl beat him up. I uh, mentioned about five times that she ambushed him and hit him with some kind of wooden spear or something. At first, he said his reflexes were dulled from all the beers he'd downed. Then I reminded him he'd been about to get behind the wheel, and that might not be the smartest thing to tell the chief of police. Anyway, I brought Judith in regardless, just to talk with her, and I saw her face like that. Can't get a hold of her parents, no surprise there, so I told her I was holding her, until she admitted it was completely stupid and promised never to do anything like it again. That's why I called you. What? Why? She won't promise. Trent shook his head. Dad, if you can't get through to her... His dad smiled, weakly. I know, but I have to leave. I'm already late for this conference, and it's an hour drive. So she's inside? Trenton asked. 
Yeah, in my office. I'd really appreciate it, son, if you could just give it a shot. I'll wait out here a few minutes while you do the whole good cop routine, and then I'm going to roar in and try to scare her straight. He gazed out the windshield. She's always been a little weird. It was cute when she was younger. Trenton laughed and reached for the door handle. Wait, Trent, one more thing. He pulled the sunglasses off his son's face. Todd called this morning, too. Talked to both me and Rich. Said you and Dan Barton got in a fight? Looks like you might have lost. I got a good shot in, Trent said defensively. His dad frowned. You've never behaved this way before. And now this craziness with Judith as well? What do you have, one of those fight clubs going? Is there something in the water? Trent shrugged. Todd said he'd give you another shot if you want your job back. I don't. Trenton's father turned the AC temp down one more tick. I know we've been drifting apart a little lately, but this is completely insane. I don't know what to say, Dad. Tell me it won't happen again. That'd be a good start. I really don't need this weighing on my mind right now, you or Judith. Hey, we thought you liked it insane, right? Trent wished he could pull the words back into his mouth. He truly hated the thought of causing his father any sort of distress. I'm sorry, Dad. I I didn't mean that. No, I'm sorry. Boys fight. It's just that... Can I talk to you, man to man, a minute? Sure. I I really feel like I'm being shut out of this investigation, the, the break-ins. I know I'm not around a lot because of class and pastoral stuff, and I know Rich is just trying to stand on his own two feet, but I don't know. And then this today, and Rich is trying to push me out the door, saying he'll handle it, go to my conference, blah, blah, blah. Of course, Gary Fisher's his friend. They came up together, so he wants to protect him, but I was their friend too. I just hate the way I'm losing control. I know I'm supposed to let go, but I hate it. He hesitated. I shouldn't be telling you any of this. I've always had a great sense of boundaries, but he grappled for the words. All the lines are blurring now, you know? Anyway, it's not fair to burden you with this stuff. It's okay, Trenton said. But can you back up a second? You were friends with Coach Fisher? His dad smiled sheepishly. Yeah, he was two years ahead of me, and I thought he was cool. Rich was in the class between us. We had our own little gang of buddies, maybe seven or eight guys. Not what you'd call a good influence on me. That's why I've always hammered into your head just how important it is to choose your friends well. Which I thought you had done pretty safely with Judith, but... You know, we got into a lot of trouble. I could have gone down a really bad road. (laughs) You? Trenton couldn't help but laugh. Reverend Police Chief? What kind of trouble? Let's just say the first time I saw the inside of the holding cell was not as a cop. Our little group, we had this stupid initiation. I think Gary's older brother made it up a few years earlier. Trenton felt the blood draining from his face. Wait, you don't mean the Crown Fire boys? His dad was taken aback. Oh, so it's still around? Huh. He ran a hand through his hair. Do me a favor and give those guys a wide berth. Nothing but trouble there. What was it back then, though? Was it like a serious group? His dad thought for a moment. For a couple guys, it was almost like a street gang. He laughed. In Clinch Rock. That's pretty lame when I say it out loud, but you know how it is. He gestured at Trent's eye. Getting into fights, getting into trouble. But, you know, when you live in such a tiny little town, you try to make life feel bigger. Which is stupid, because you realize when you grow up that even if you stay in the dinky town, before long, life is going to feel way, way too big. 
He checked his watch and said, All right, why don't you give Judith a try there, slugger? I really do need to leave. All right, good cop is en route. He redonned his sunglasses and stepped out of the car. Hey, look who it is! Officer Cash called from behind the desk. How you doing there, Trent? He was all smiles, the polar opposite of Officer Tyrell. When Trent began signing his name, the cop pulled the clipboard back and said, No need for that, we know you. He dropped his voice and added, Another weird day, huh? You have no idea, Trent said, heading back to his dad's office. You're rocking those shades, by the way, Cash called out after him. He opened the door to the office and saw Judith sitting there, legs crossed, totally at ease. A long, angry bruise stretched from her right eye down to the apple of her cheek. Check it out, she said, indicating her skirt. I made it out of the ugliest, like, 1990s ties I could find. Isn't that hilarious? Trent kept a straight face and walked over to his dad's chair, where he sat with as much authority as he could muster. This was apparently hilarious to Judith. Your eye, he said. That looks horrible. She shrugged. You should see the other guy. Hey, what's with the shades? You trying to look like a cop? He pulled them off. Whoa, she said. We're twins. How'd that happen? Dan Barton. Her face darkened. Judith, don't even think about doing anything crazy. I started the fight, okay? Anyway, I'm here to talk about you, not me. What were you thinking? I was thinking it was time for a test run. And I'm thinking... It went well. Seriously. Well, you know, I could have done without the black eye, but I got home in one piece. And now Fisher knows what will happen to him if he threatens his wife again. Which is what? I'll take off the kid gloves. He says you ambushed him, hit him with a pole or something. Judith was offended. Yeah, right. I walked right up to him while he was fumbling for his keys. And you know what I did to get his attention? I knocked the side mirror off that stupid truck. You should have seen his face. And what did he do? Despite wanting to thoroughly condemn the attack, Trent could not deny that he was intensely curious about how the whole thing had gone down. He just punched me. I fell back against the truck, and then I kicked him right in the chest. A couple blows to the head later, and he was done. Not unconscious exactly, but definitely down for the count. I could have done anything I wanted to him after that. And he knows it. You've got to stop this, Judith, Trent said. What if he had a gun? She shrugged. I would have disarmed him. Are you delusional? Before she could answer, the door opened and the chief walked in. He sat on the corner of his desk and asked, You make any progress with her, Trent? Not really. Adam fumbled with his badge for a moment, removing it from his shirt and placing it on the table. Judith, I want to talk to you a minute, not as a policeman, but as your pastor. He paused for a moment, reconsidering. No, forget that. I want to talk to you as a friend. Judy Bug, I've known you since you were six years old. I love you like a daughter. And the thought that you would put yourself into such a dangerous position just... He choked on his own words and bit back some tears. One still managed to escape his right eye and trickle down his cheek. Judith got up from her chair and hugged him around the neck. I'm sorry, she said. Please don't cry. She sniffed and wiped away some of her own tears. They stood there silently for a good 20 seconds before Trent realized she was tapping a message onto his back. Almost another minute of tapping went by before Trent's dad nodded and said, That's all I ask. He gave her one more squeeze and let her go. I gotta head out, kids. Am I free to go? She asked. Under one condition, 
whatever that thing was you hit Fisher with, he said it was some kind of wooden pitchfork or it was an ox goad, she said. (laughs) Whatever it was, you chop it up into kindling, okay? She nodded. I promise. I don't need it anymore. Good to hear. He put his hat on. Trent, I'll be home late tonight. See you tomorrow. Have a good day off. Trenton called after him, feeling stupid for it. After all, it was nearing noon already, and he and Judith had filled the chief's morning with nothing but grief. But he was feeling great as he escorted Judith out of the building, trying to shield her from the looks and whispers. It seemed as though his dad had pulled it off. Why hadn't he brought this to him a week ago? As they walked out into the heat of the day, someone called out, Hey, Trent! Looking up, he saw Rich Barton standing against the wall of the station, having a cigarette. Come here a minute! He said, Oh boy, Trenton mumbled. Then to Judith, I'll be right back. I hope. He jogged over to Barton, who was stomping out the cigarette amid a graveyard of extinguished butts and smeared tar. What's up, Mr. Barton? Chief Barton. Right, sorry. Barton smiled. It's fine. Let me get a look at that face. He gestured at Trent's glasses and whistled low at the sight of the swollen eye behind them. My Danny did that? Trent nodded. He can be a bit of a Neanderthal, I know. I was just like him at that age. He start the fight? No, it was me. Barton looked impressed. Still, though, he's a lot bigger than you. He should have walked away. I'll talk to him. That's not necessary, sir. The chief nodded approvingly. Anyway, I just wanted to say again, thanks for the tip this morning. I got my best guys on it. You ever think about joining the force when you graduate? I kind of doubt it. Our loss, I guess. You'd be a real asset, unlike your friend over there. If I had my way, she'd be doing five years. Trenton had no idea what to say to that. Well, Barton said, patting the circumference of his belt as if to make sure nothing had fallen off. I better get back at it. He ambled back into the station. Diner? Judith prompted when he returned. My treat. That sounds good. They began to walk lazily down the sidewalk. I gotta tell you, Judith, I am so relieved you're putting this crazy stuff behind you. I don't think I've ever been so scared in my life as when I got that call. I know, she said. I'll be more careful next time. Trenton came to a stop. What do you mean, next time? I thought you and my dad, like... We reached an understanding, she said. What does that mean? What understanding? That you should learn Morse code. She started walking again. Trenton didn't. Judith, you can't save everybody. Heck, my dad had to save you this morning or you'd be headed to juvie or jail. Did you think of that? She laughed and shook her head dismissively. (laughs) I knew going in that there was no possible world in which Fisher agrees to get up on a witness stand and publicly admit he got beat down by a girl. I'm untouchable. Trenton tried to gather his thoughts together. For some reason, he felt like this moment was his last chance to make a real case against all this, to show Judith the absurdity of what she was doing. Reaching back into his mind, he tried to assemble the best argument of all the potential arguments, the one that would put an end to all of this once and for all. But he had nothing. He was tapped out. So he just threw up his hands and joined his friend for lunch at the Whitetail Diner. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. 
Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut Check.